0: Hi, this is John Dearman from the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet, and this is All Strings Considered. We were talking about rehearsal. So what happens? So after we have our argument. I've had this feeling for a long time that there's an issue. I'm sure all of my colleagues who are college professors in particular probably grapple with, and that's that. We're basically running these you know pretty good sized guitar programs and we're churning out a lot of pretty talented capable guitar players but we're turning them out into a market where there's going to be a very few opportunities. Scott was always very funny. When people would ask us this question, he had a really great way. It's like, well, you know, we everybody walks in the door, we talk about what's happening, and then we sit down to rehearse, we get tuned up, and then we go, well, let's have coffee, and then uh, we talk about what we're gonna do. Somebody asks a question, and then we decide, well, we should make a list about that. So we make a list, and then we take a <laughs> coffee break, and then, yeah, so, I mean, it's something, something on that order. And,
1: Hey everyone, and welcome back to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf.
2: All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories, and by Audible.com. To get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com allstrings. There are over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player.
1: Today we're talking with John Deerman, who I finally convinced to come chat with me on behalf of the Grammy award-winning Los Angeles Guitar Quartet. You've already heard a little bit of LAGQ during the All Strings Considered episodes with quartet members Scott Tennant and Bill Kanningeiser, but I think the quartet itself merits its own episode, not to mention that they play a killer arrangement of Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite, which is perfectly suited for this time of year. Consisting of Bill Kanningeiser, Scott Tennant, John Deerman, and most recently Matt Greif, the LA Guitar Quartet has been playing concerts and making some of my favorite albums for over 30 years. So first, I asked John what it is that's given them so much success and just sheer staying power as an ensemble over all those years.
0: I think there's two things about it that well, part of it is success, and I think that so we all know that that it works and people like it, and you know we get all this appreciation for doing what we do, and so I think well, it's hard to do, and various people are less and less enthusiastic about traveling and everything you know Mm -hmm. they're willing to keep doing it because you know we have this successful thing we have people who really enjoy it obviously Bill and Scott are you know really you know unique virtuoso guitar players Uh and so that that really helps a lot that you have you know just for starters anyhow you have two of the best soloists out there right you know Uh playing in the same group that's a good point of departure
2: Mm -hmm. but
0: I think the other thing too is that it's a combination of uh, that there's a chemistry or personality aspect to it, and I, I don't know how to quantify that at all or how to weigh in on it because I'm, I'm, I'm inside of it, but this is such an ongoing commentary that we get from people. Because we're not talking, right? We're playing, so I don't right. you know what they mean when they say personality, but they're... I, I think it has a little bit to do also with kind of a group sound. I think we have a sound from the inside. It's a little bit hard for me to hear that, but sometimes when I hear quartets play we hear quartets in masterclasses all the time and uh, you rarely hear that, like with other quartet, that there's a real sound that, where it really, yeah. I don't know, it just has a well, personality.
1: Whether I've heard the recording or not, I immediately know yeah. if it's a LA guitar quartet. I, I,
0: don't, I don't, I don't, and by sound I don't mean tone, I mean it's something... There's just a sound to the group. It's the way you play, it's not, it's not actually literally your tone. Although I think it's the combined tones create yeah. a certain confluence or something. So we're lucky enough to have developed that, I mean lucky enough and, and we've been around long enough, but I think we had it from the beginning also. And then the other thing is just in terms of not breaking up because of some you know horrible personality issues or oh. something, I, th- I think that the two big things on that side of it are that one, I won't speak for myself here of course, but first of all i would say scott is a guy who not only you know is just so extravagantly gifted as a guitarist and as a musician but he's also like a really really easy person to work with like he's just really generous other people who maybe are more opinionated or more like interested in their agenda like i can be i can really be like that at times and he he never lets it bother him he just is the kind of person who just stay out of arguments and that sort of thing So while people perceive Scott as being like this super important part of the quartet, obviously he has tons of ideas and expertise to add. He won't ever bite. You can't push any buttons with him and he'll never bite on that stuff. And so such a guy who carries so much influence in the group. He doesn't ever lord it over people or anything like that. So he has a really good personality for working with four other people. Uh-huh. Especially if there's people who are a little more in love with their ideas or whatever. So, uh-huh. and again, like I'll put myself in that, that category, unfortunately. But, <laughs> and then on the other the other point, I think is really important is that Bill is a guy who basically, if there's something that needs to be done, no matter how unpleasant the task or what letter has to be written or what arrangement has to be done or what detail has to be taken care of for a tour or a recording or calling the management. Bill can't sleep unless it's been done. He's always been like that and he's still like that to this day. And so Bill and I both have done most of the management stuff over the years, but Bill, mm-hmm. you know, far more than than any of us. And I mean, we went to school together and I know from being in classes with Bill, when he got homework assignments, he started that day. You know, I mean, he had something that was due like in two months. He, he just had really just good just work habits. Yeah. Long, yeah. And of course, you know, super smart and can figure anything out. And so those two things help a lot because yeah. Basically stuff gets taken care of very competently and in a timely manner for the most part. And then, you know, the right kind of personality in terms of like being able to deal with conflict and all that sort of thing. Bill's also pretty good. Bill doesn't like to fight. I'm a little more of a guy who's trying to stir things up all the time. I always worry that we're resting on our laurels and Mm -hmm. a little too comfortable. Oh, this always has worked for us, so why would we change that? And that always makes me feel very uncomfortable. But that puts me in a position of creating conflict.
1: So on top of that vital, positive reinforcement that they receive from their fans and audiences, it sounds to me like LAGQ has a really great recipe of personality types. They obviously have plenty of musical talent, but it also sounds like they have cultivated some other abilities, like the ability to compromise, the drive and motivation to deal with the business and management side of things, and the courage to shake things up and fight for an idea when the situation calls for it. And time has told that this recipe has really worked. So let's hear LAGQ in action. We'll hear Bill Cannengeiser's arrangement of Icarus first, a tribute to Ralph Towner on LAGQ's Grammy winning Guitar Heroes album, and a medley of tunes by Antonio Carlos Jobim, arranged by Sergio Assad, and featuring singer Luciana Sousa, from one of their most recent albums, LAGQ Brazil. I love the words of the first tune in the medley, A Felicidade. They go, Tristeza notem fim, Felicidade si. Sadness has no end, but happiness does. Not a depressing tune, I think, but about living those moments of joy to their fullest.
0: because you were asking about arranging and that sort of thing and it's yeah. amongst many things this isn't necessarily the most important but one of the things that people miss out a lot on as far as making arrangements is that you know in our quartet different people may have different opinions about how important this is but i think that one of the most important things and it's not super obvious it wouldn't occur to you really but don't have everybody playing all the time <laughs> You know, like break it, break up the texture because it's a, it can be kind of a, the texture can kind of wear on you a bit, you know, if it's just like everybody going full tilt all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think really good examples of it are, I think one of the best examples in our, uh, repertory sure. of arrangements uh-huh. is, uh, one of our first things that we did, which is Bill's arrangement of Elmore Brujo. Oh and, yeah, that's great. And Elmore Brujo not only has little. Well, actually, it doesn't have separate movements that are duos, but it has a, a lot of little, it's a pretty episodic, Elmar Brujo, it has a lot of little like, connecting bits of music.
1: Yeah, the movements kind of blend one into the other. Right.
0: And a lot of those are duos. There's even some like almost semi solo things mm. happening in it, like not really cadenzas, but just little solo connectors and i think that the more you can do that the more you can kind of break up the texture i think it's one of the things that you can use to make a bigger pieces yeah you know yeah.
1: sound better so we're about to hear some of lagq's really clever arranging in their version of el amor brujo composed by manuel lefaya but first let's hear john talk about how this arrangement came to be it has kind of an interesting history
0: uh go to the cycle. twelve seconds. let sec? let's see what that is Oh that's interesting. Go to the go to number or let's see what that is, yeah. This is really good. This is this is This
1: is really cool though.
0: Yeah, this is Scott and Andy.
1: So you had done pieces of it first
0: and then Well way back in the day, yeah. Ian Krauss well actually he played in the original Los Angeles I think they were called the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet. Hmm. This is back in probably like eighty maybe 79, something mm. like that. It was Ian Krauss, I think, I know Jim Smith was in the group, you know, who was a professor at USC. Ian Krauss, Terry Graves, and maybe Kenton Youngstrom, I'm not sure who was in, mm. in that, or Tom Wong, someone like that. But, um, so Ian had arranged the Ritual Fire Dance from Elmore Brujo. And so when our group started playing, we were the USC guitar quartet originally, and we played the Ritual Fire Dance in our repertory. And then after playing that for a while, i think actually before that scott also decided to arrange we call it the fuego fatuo yeah the, the will of yeah. the wisp and scott had arranged that so we had two movements and then bill said well you know this sounds really great i'm just going to do the whole thing and so he
1: incorporated some of those older arrangements into the
0: yeah overall. so he 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 didn't bother to rearrange those so when when you when you see it in our concert program it says arranged by bill canning but if you look at the record listing on the on the recording it'll say bill canning Ian Krause and Scott Tennant because he just for those two movements he used their their Mm. arrangements
1: there's so many cool sound effects in this one that you guys do
0: yeah but there's nothing with gadgets or anything like that you know yeah it's just cool
1: ways of cross using
0: cross-string trills yeah I'll show you cool I'll show you a cool one too this part here in the original that's that's a glissando on the piano just glissando's up and down oh, and gorgeous.
1: so a glissando like that is really tricky on the guitar
0: i heard the vita quartet you know vita they yeah well eat yeah. yeah Eden and were here and it was great to hear their arrangement of this they they did some things that were i mean bill kind of he did like an arrangement of this piece as opposed to a transcription so he was very liberal he kind of took like what he heard and what he felt about the piece one of the movements at the end might be interesting for you to put a little bit of it on the second to the last movement is called The Dance of the Game of Love, and what Bill did is very, very different. Well, this is a Bullerius, and I mean, we know. Although, when you hear the original, I'll be curious to see what you think, because you know flamenco so well. But it has Bullerius rhythm, but it doesn't have the character of a Bolarius. It's it's huh. quite calm and slow. And I think also Scott kind of chimed in because Scott knew flamenco better than any of us, especially at that time. And uh, he said, well, "This is a bolería." So Bill just wrote it like a bolerías, <laughs> and so we play it a lot faster, a lot more rambunctiously, you know, than huh. the original. But anyway, I was starting to say how it was great to hear Vita because they they did it much more like a transcription. Of course, when you're doing an orchestral piece on four guitars, even though you have four guitars and all those strings and all those fingers, there's, you still have to leave a lot out, mm-hmm. and you got to make choices about. In music like this, I mean, which is basically impressionistic music, I think Faya you hear a lot of something like Debussy might have written. I mean, the yeah. kinds of like really dense harmonies, I guess you could say. Yeah. And so you got to make choices about notes. And I think when I hear the Vita Quartet play Elmo Brujo, to me, it sounds a lot more like the, like the original. Uh. And when you listen to us play, um, it sounds more like a, an arrangement mm. with a kind of a, a real point of view behind mm. it. Um, But anyway, I started mentioning that because at the beginning, the thing with the piano uh, glissando, they actually play it. I mean, I don't know how they they had a they do a trading thing between, I think, Chris and Mark. Mark? No, not Mark, but there are two Marks. Yeah, Chris and the other Mark. I forget. (laughs) I forget the other. other Yeah, I'm sorry, Mark. (laughs) Um,
1: That would be Mark Ashford.
0: They trade off scales like really, really quickly. So. Oh. So that's kind of interesting. My
1: students aren't always sure when they should put transcription or arrangement. Maybe you can help define the difference.
0: Well, I mean, easy way to define it is recently, Matt Greif arranged this set of what he calls post bop, you know, jazz classics. So we've been playing those and he did two Miles Davis tunes and one John Coltrane. So we do giant steps and we do uh, blue and green. And so what, so what people probably know from the famous kind of blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miles Davis' record, Blue and Green's on Kind of Blue also. That's the one with that great uh, bass line, right? Yes. Uh, so What is so the one with the great... Yeah. yeah. And so we do it, and it has the bass line, but it doesn't... It's like much, The way we do it's much faster. Mm. Um, it's not as cool. It's not as laid back. Part of the reason he did it was because Matt heard a recording of, of all people, Jerry Garcia and... Who's the mandolinist? Uh-huh. Dave Grisman. Yeah. yeah. So Jerry Garcia and David Grissman playing uh-huh. So What? and they do it like really bouncy and up-tempo yeah. and I- I've heard the recording it's really great and so he kind of had that feel in mind when he did the arrangement of that oh. so anyway those are really arrangements it's not really an attempt to copy the performance on Kind of Blue mm-hmm. or even the feel or the, the form you know because mm-hmm. you, you can kind of do whatever you want with the form with something mm-hmm. like that so he has a kind of complex introduction I mean the way Matt describes it is he he wanted to write it like a chamber piece mm. because as a jazz piece basically you got a head you have the solos and then you have the head right. and that that's the standard form of doing a jazz tune yeah. and if you're doing a chamber piece you would maybe do a section where there's like interplay between the players and another one where everybody's playing the head and then you might do an introduction which has little snippets of themes and that sort of thing mm-hmm. and then you gotta have intro outro like all these different things you can do Maybe that's too easy of a choice because that's jazz, and jazz is always going to be an arrangement. Absolutely. Yeah. But a transcription would be when I did my transcription of Rossini, the Barber Seville. I mean, I tried to make it as much like what I think an orchestral performance would sound like. I mean, there's mm-hmm. certain things I had to do that you can't do on guitar, like big orchestral tremolos, like big tuttis, where all the all the string players are just going crazy with tremolo. I mean, we right. did rasquiatos, you know, uh-huh. instead. I mean, I think a really good example, again, of the difference between transcription and arrangement is just in Elomar Brujo itself that there's some movements where it really sounds a lot like listening to Faya's orchestral composition. Uh-huh. And then there's other times where he took a movement. It was kind of in a 12 beat pattern. So we turned it into a bolerias. but But right. really, if you listen to the Elomar Brujo, you, it doesn't sound at all like
1: that. Uh-huh, so it's sort of a reimagining in a way.
0: Yeah, he had this notion that well, that's a bolerias and so let's just play a bolerias and mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Okay. So I won't play you the entire Amor Brujo suite because I want to save time to play you a big chunk of the Nutcracker, but let's hear a section or two. Let's start with Ian Krause's section, the Ritual Fire Dance, followed by one of those transitions that use only two of the four guitars in the quartet. Then one of my favorite pieces, the Canción del Fuego Fatuo or the Song of the Will of the Wisp. Then we'll end with Bill's flamenco take on the dance of the game of love, which leads into the finale titled The Bells of Sunrise.
0: No, I've had th- I've had this feeling for a long time that there's an issue. I'm sure all of my colleagues who are college professors, in particular, probably grapple with, and that's that we're basically running these you know pretty good-sized guitar programs. In some cases, they're they're really big guitar programs, and we're churning out a lot of you know for the most part pretty talented you know capable guitar players, but we're turning them out into a market where there's going to be a very few opportunities sort of ready-made opportunities for these students. And so, you know, I don't know what other teachers tell their students in terms of, or how often they get asked, like, well, what am I gonna do with this guitar degree? Well, if it's a bachelor's degree, you're gonna get a master's degree with that. And if it's a Uh master's degree, well, you can get a a DMA with that. So now that I'm teaching, not quite full-time, but I'm at Cal State Northridge now, and for the last three years, I've been teaching on a much, you know, bigger scale than I have in the past, and at at a little bit higher level, now that I have to answer that question for myself, how do I feel about that being part of that process of turning out maybe 15? Well, let's, let's put it this way. I mean, we're a small part of what has to be hundreds of classical guitarists just in the States graduating every year, right? Mm-hmm. Hundreds worldwide, who knows? The best that I can come up with, you know, to make something in that situation is to, to just, these are obviously young people who, for the most part, they're people who really want to do it. Some people are just doing it because they kind of don't know what else to do. And their parents want them to go to college, or they think they should go to college. So I I just lay it out starkly at the beginning. I you know I write this I have this you know letter that now I've duplicated each year, but I send it out and I just tell people that they're they're undertaking something that entails a responsibility. So they want to have a career in the arts, and if you want to have a career in the arts, you're Going to be very much challenged in terms. Well, I mean, on a lot of different levels, but on a practical level, going to be very much challenged in terms of being able to support yourself. Um, so, um, at, at this point in their you know lives or careers or whatever, uh, the, the the best thing they can do is to take their education extremely seriously. Of course, I'm talking. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about Juilliard. I mean, I'm at a state. I mean, if you're talking about students at Juilliard, it's, it's, a, different it's a different thing. thing. Yeah. If you're talking about students at USC, it's also a different thing. All those people are very, very motivated. Uh, I mean, not all of them, but, but most of them are very, very motivated mm-hmm. and have their eye on the prize. and have been doing this for a long time. But at a state at a state school, you have students coming in who often haven't been doing it very long. A lot is expected of them and they need to develop, if nothing else, in addition to guitar playing skills, skills that have to do with being a musician an interpretive artist you know all those things working in ensemble working with colleagues working with peers working in chamber music there's certain kind of professional skills also
1: returning emails showing up on time
0: right keeping an appointment book or you know calendar or whatever nothing else by the time that they've graduated with a bachelor's degree that they will have learned those skills. They'll have learned how to work hard. They'll have learned what it means to be disciplined in your habits.
1: I think the idea is that you're not just doing guitar. You're learning how to be successful at anything that you go after. Yeah, exactly. And that includes a whole lot of things. That might include interpersonal things. That might include just being able to organize your time.
0: Right. When they do have that Bachelor of Music degree, they will have developed a set of skills that are outside of guitar and probably outside of music that would enable them to go into another field. A lot of musicians, you know, successful young musicians who maybe go through a bachelor's or even a graduate program, they may end up being doctors and lawyers like like real high skill professional level careers. Not that music's not highly skilled. <laughs> well, I said other, yeah. Uh, be, because of the skills that they that they learned because they were excellent musicians and excellent student musicians, you know? So uh, yeah, the skill set is to really work on mastering an instrument at the same time you're taking theory classes and you know analysis classes and music That's history classes scary. not to mention biology and everything else yeah it's, it's pretty challenging
1: so speaking of working with others so you've got this quartet i imagine you guys have a way of rehearsing that is really effective i mean you rehearse what once a week if that
0: well For the longest time, you know, probably for probably about 20 years or so, we basically, I've heard that groups like Chanticleer, Kronos Quartet, I mean, it's a five day a week job. I don't know if Mm Kronos still does that, but it probably depends on their workload at at any given time. But Mm -hmm. for us, we're sort of a one day a week group. So Mondays is like the easiest way to say it is that nobody is supposed to schedule teaching on Monday. Monday has to be left open. It's been that way for, for the last 20, 25 years, probably. So that's our kind of default rehearsal day. And, and that's usually like a four or five hour.
1: That's serious. Yeah. yeah.
0: But we have a good lunch break and a couple of coffee breaks. But
1: <laughs> So is it always at Scott's house
0: then? It's always at Scott's house uh, because of course he has the, you know, gigantic espresso machine.
1: So what do those five hours look like besides the coffee and the lunch?
0: You know, it it completely depends upon what we have happening at that time. So I I guess you could say that there's kind of three basic modes. The most intense would be recording mode where you have a recording project and you've got either a lot of new repertory or you're resurrecting repertory. But anyway, you've got like this 60-minute, it's usually not stuff that's on our concert program at the time. So there's all this repertory that needs all this attention. And in most cases, it's been new. Like most of the records that we've done have been things where as the recording is getting closer we keep adding new things to get to 60 minutes or 50 minutes or whatever it is Mm -hmm. so those periods are pretty intense and those usually are going to be three day a week periods and then the kind of middle one is like if we have one new piece i mean in other words the arrangement or the composition issues aside in terms of interpretation the bulk of our time is spent on articulation maybe Mm. you see balance is kind of guesswork because you you never really know until you record yourself, you know, or something like that, it's really hard to actually really objectively know what balances are like, especially because, you know, different playing style issues. There's different guitar issues. Yeah, We all get different guitars and different kinds of approaches. Yeah. yeah, if If you're playing like a pure bass line, you can almost never overplay because it's so far away from everything else plus there's that whole proximity effect thing with like low frequency doesn't travel very far but it's also hard to tell that stuff at close range Mm. what about when you're in a big hall so balances are really tricky i think that's just kind of like instinct but it's hard you can't make completely objective decisions you can about what you want to do but in Uh terms of being able to know if it's actually working the same way that you can about articulation for example so articulation of course is you know such a huge issue it's a huge issue when you're playing solo but when you're playing anything more than solo, two guitars or three or four, you actually have to make a decision. So a lot of times we'll we'll go round and round in circles and then we'll just say, well, we'll figure it out later and then we never really talk about it again <laughs> and just, but I think there's enough in our playing where we've been playing long enough to where we, we have enough of the piece worked out to where we have come to agreement on these decisions. And then the places where maybe we're kind of winging it, it's a combination of that, there just aren't that many of them, and they don't really show that much, plus the fact that we're just really good at listening, and we kind of have a group think that kind of takes care of that stuff to a certain extent. But I often wonder what it's like to listen to us. You know, people really like what we do, and, I mean, not just in terms of enjoyment, but in terms of appreciation, maybe, for what we do as an ensemble. And being inside the group, I often think, like, oh, my God, you know, I mean, there's, we didn't work on that, and we didn't figure that out, and we're disagreeing on stuff. And, but it doesn't seem to, to really bother people that much, so that's that's curious to me. And then the third category is just maintenance. Mm -hmm. So it'll range from anywhere where we'll go a couple months without rehearsing at all. Either we don't have anything going on or we have a lot of concerts and people are super busy. Probably the one thing I would comment about maintenance rehearsals that I think that we found early on is that with music that you play it a lot, one thing you have to be careful is that things just start getting loose. It's like a Ouija board. Without meaning to do it, somehow that little thing moves around, you know, through um, some kind of weird thing. Yeah, thing that, right. Yeah. It just makes the thing move to these letters. It's just things kind of creep in a direction. The most obvious being tempo. I'd say in most cases where we have tempo creep, it would be towards the fast side. Uh huh. Which is not a good thing because when you get faster, I think you lose groove. And uh-huh. and by groove, I'm, I'm talking about anything from... African music to to 19th century music. You know we, we'll do metronome practice. The metronome just shows everybody very clearly. There's no discussion. Probably like a lot of groups it's just personality driven so there are people mm-hmm. who like bossing people around and others who just kind <laughs> of <No>, I'm kidding. <laughs> I think our group kind of covers the the gamut of the spectrum of, of all those possibilities so everybody has a lot of musical ideas. I think everybody knows that Bill is a very verbal and a very outgoing and a, a guy with a lot of ideas, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, Bill has a pretty amazing capacity for being able to take in everything and process it. So, like, while we're playing things, he's very, very good at, at hearing what's happening all around him, not just what's going yeah. on, with, even with new pieces. The danger with that is that he can sometimes... I'm I'm always, like, changing things and trying anything from fingerings to just different ways of playing a phrase or doing articulations or shaping or whatever. and and sometimes, you know, I'll hear from somewhere in the group. It's like, oh, you know, that that, that didn't sound good there. It's like, well, yeah, but that's because we're still experimenting. So, <laughs> so, so that can be a little bit tricky with that that mm. kind of personality, who's like so that's sensitive, fast so fast. Sen- yeah. yeah, yeah, so amazing. Yeah. That that can be a downside of it. But for the most part, Bill's great because he can really pick up problems before anybody else perceives them. Mm. But everybody's got their strengths. Scott, of course, as everybody knows, is a you know phenomenal musician, like super sensitive and especially in so many areas, arcane areas too. He has really great facility with a lot of the world music stuff we do. He knows how it should sound. He's incredible with early music, with Baroque music and early music. Yeah, just his sense of like touch and style yeah. in early music, I think is pretty phenomenal. With Matt, it's kind of a unique situation because even though we're going at eight years now with Matt in the group, he still is very deferential. Still the new guy. Yeah, he, he still kind of hangs back and I think he probably just sees that there's already enough, you know, discussion and enough noise. There's a lot of capable people, you know, chiming in on things that he maybe thinks a that it, w- it would just month. muddy the waters or something like that. Yeah. And I mean, I'll often, like, ask him, like, you know, you know just, just to make him feel more free to uh-huh. say what he wants to say. But I don't know what it's like to be Matt. I kind of wonder, like, for him to have to be in this and, like, look at, because there's some crazy stuff with you know, the three of us who've been going on 35 years, you know, that it must be really crazy for him to to see the dynamic in the in the group. I mean, trust me, you know, everything's great in the quartet. I mean, we've we passed through all the phases of being young guys who were good friends and, you know, just living it up. And it's like, isn't this great? Going through the initial stages of success and all the gratification that came with that, And then getting into the middle years where it was really difficult and Mm. the breakups, you know, we, there was Anissa Angarola was in the initial quartet and that breakup was, you know, difficult. And then Andy leaving, that wasn't, when he actually left, it wasn't difficult at all because he basically said, I'm at a point right now where there's like so many things that I want to do for me to do this properly, to be in the quartet. It's it's like a huge commitment. Mm. He had been doing it for... Yeah, like years, fifteen. Right? Yeah, seventeen years, I guess, is what yeah. we figured it out to be. And he's, but in the years leading up to that, there were a lot of challenges in the quartet mm-hmm. at that time, like not exactly personal things, but probably more. Art, you could say artistic differences, mm-hmm. and the things that come up in a group are on the ground musical decisions. So in rehearsals, people having differences of opinions about tempo yeah, and yeah. Uh, articulation, and you know what have you. But then there's the macro world, and that would be like choosing repertoire. Like this piece is great. Why aren't we playing this piece? And mm-hmm. someone else says, well that piece is simplistic or that piece is Mm. audiences won't like that piece or you know somebody wants to play some really crazy music people go well our our audience won't like that I mean Mm. although that discussion doesn't really happen very much because then that that's a kind of a weird discussion to have I think because then you start saying like well we're pandering or something like that
1: John is an avid podcast listener like I am, so every time we get together, we make sure to get caught up on any great new podcast discoveries. But since I'm trying to keep this episode to somewhere in the neighborhood of an hour, I'm going to do an All Strings Considered short that has John's picks. That way, you'll have some new podcasts to start off 2014, and I can take a minute to get caught up with some editing. So look for that one a day or so after this episode. On that note, let's move on to the Nutcracker Suite.
0: I think one of my favorites is the dance of the reed pipes. Yeah, just sounds sounds really good. I think the the one that I think doesn't really work very well is a Chinese dance. Because it has, you know, that's bump bum 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 bump bump. Bum. That's really a flute lick, that crazy scale that goes up. But it's those notes running up, it just it always sounds a little off, you know, in the guitar. But they all it really works well. Andy originally arranged that for I think he mentioned this on his podcast with you. I, I listened to that. And I think he mentioned that he, he mentioned it because I think it was how he met John Williams that he, yeah. he had arranged it for two guitars. And when he was in Spain, you know, way back in the day and went to a Williams class or something like that, he played it with this other friend of his. Uh-huh. And um, anyway, a few years later when he ended up in the quartet, he said, Hey, you know, I did this for two guitars. It worked great for four. So that's how that came about. So,
1: okay, so, there, so is there anything that you remember this particularly? Well, you said some of them are tricky. Are there some special things you guys did?
0: This is one of the first things Andy did. I think he wrote Bantu first, and then I think the next thing he did was arrange this. So Right, so he, he was starting to experiment with different you know ways of using the quartet, mm-hmm. and one of the things he did was, there's like long-scale passages that he splits up and between two oh. people. Oh, you know where he does it? Go to the march. And go for like the second half of it. Here we go. Yeah, so that's two guitarists. One oh, going, they're going. So every two beats? Yeah, so we split it up because it's a, it's again, it's some it's wood, a monster. It's like a woodwind lick that is probably clarinets or something like that. That's just crazy, yeah. Styles. Oh, and you
1: totally don't catch it. It just sounds like a line. Yeah. Well, time for one more celebration of the holidays and the conclusion of this last episode of All Strings Considered for 2013. I'll be back to bring you more music and interviews starting January 15th. Before we hear the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet play Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite, let me say thanks for listening to All Strings Considered. I'm your host,
2: Scott Wolf. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories, and by Audible.com. To get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com allstrings. There are over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player.
1: Hey, if you get a chance, go rate the show on iTunes, like it on Facebook, or follow on Twitter at AllStrings. Strings. It's been great fun talking to John Deerman today on behalf of the LA Guitar Quartet. Here they are playing the first half of the Nutcracker Suite up to the Russian dance. Then we're going to skip a couple and conclude with the dance of the reed pipes and the waltz of the flowers. Have a happy new year and see you in 2014.
0: You could Uh. do one of those acting class things like, huh?
3: Huh? Huh. Hi there.